This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence here today. We thank you for your love for each one of us, and we thank you for the opportunity to be here at GYC this year. It is a time to make decisions. It's a time to make recommitments. It's a time to draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be present in this place, not only in this room, but in all the rooms where the seminars are taking place and where interactions are taking place in the hallway, that we might leave this place reinvigorated, refocused with a mission to finish the work that you have called us to. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go over with you what we're going to be doing uh, during the next six uh, presentations. And uh, I'm going to be doing that in a kind of systematic way here. Um, I've divided, of course, this seminar up into six parts. Recently, about um, a half a year ago or so, I finished a commentary on the book of Exodus. For those of you who don't know what a commentary is, it's when you delve into a book very deeply and you write about it passage by passage by passage all the way through. I did this for the Andrews Study Commentary that will be a companion to the Andrews Study Bible. Some of you may have an Andrews Study Bible already, and this is the companion one-volume commentary that will be going with that, and I wrote on the book of Exodus. And it was a wonderful experience to delve deeply into a book of the Bible, to read what many others have written about it over the centuries, and to be able to uh, have that kind of intense study, which hopefully will benefit uh, the church for, for years to come. And it was also a humbling experience to go through the life of Moses and to simply experience uh, what the Israelites went through during that exodus. And of course, the exodus only begins in the book of Exodus, and it continues to be narrated uh, and, and uh, dealt with all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to touch during this seminar on Exodus, on Genesis, and the books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and we're going to look at that event in history. I'm a trained archaeologist and an Egyptologist. I tell students sometimes that I, I work in three worlds, and, and that's kind of a very uh, unusual combination, but I uh, studied ancient Near Eastern archaeology at the University of Arizona for my PhD. And uh, so this is an area that I've worked at for many years. I've worked in the Middle East for uh, 30 years now, have excavated about 10 different sites, uh, 11 actually, in the Middle East, in Cyprus, in Jordan, in Israel primarily. But my other uh, major focus is Egyptology. And in my doctoral dissertation, I worked on the interaction between Egypt and Canaan during the late Bronze Age, which is the time period that the Exodus took place. I didn't focus specifically on the Exodus, but I looked at the background of all of that and looked at biblical texts and primarily Egyptian texts and how they related to that period. So you're going to hear some of that information today, and I've expanded off of that over the last 20 years in other publications on Egyptology as well. And then the third area that I'm passionate, most passionate about is the Bible and biblical studies. I teach Hebrew at Southern Adventist University. I teach in the School of Religion. We have an Institute of Archaeology there. And these are areas that I think 
the Bible can be so greatly enriched when we look at the history that that has been placed in. I also want to say that last uh, year at GYC in Phoenix, I gave a three-part series, a seminar uh, or breakout on, on biblical interpretation and modernism and postmodernism and the impact on the historical reliability of the Bible. And that is kind of a backdrop to what I'm going to be presenting during this seminar this year. So if you want to hear the foundation for what I'm going to be presenting here, uh, listen to those recordings. All of these are going to be recorded along here as well, and you'll have them available to you through the GYC website in the future. So I want to uh, draw that attention. I may make reference sometimes to some interpretations of Exodus that are out there, um, modernist and postmodernist interpretations, but the background to all of that was presented last year. So with that, let me just go into uh, the subject matter for today. And my clicker is not working. All right, good that is. Um, <clears throat> today, the... This morning, uh, our first topic is the big question, who are you? And it's the question that Moses was asking himself on a regular basis. We're going to look at prophecy because I believe that prophecy and history are uniquely and importantly intertwined. And we as Seventh-day Adventists have a unique understanding, not a unique understanding, but have expanded on the Protestant Reformation understanding of a historicist interpretation of prophecy where we look at prophecy in relationship to history, and those two elements are very, very important. And I believe today, and I spoke on this last year, today those two areas of prophecy and history as it relates to the Bible are under increasing attack in our world. And we need to know where we stand in the big picture, uh, not only of Christianity, but of, of global history and, and politics today. I'm not gonna get into politics, of course, here, but we're gonna look at prophecy. We're gonna look at the history of Egypt, and we're going to look at the destiny that God had planned for Moses and the destiny that others had planned for Moses and the conflict that that caused, that must have caused, in Moses' mind as he grew up in ancient Egypt. So we're going to look this morning at the setting for the Exodus in history. Then our next presentation this morning is a fascinating study on the origin of evil, and we're going to look at the biblical understanding of that, and then look at the ancient Egyptian understanding of the origin of evil, of the origin of their ideology, their religion, their religious practices, which was highly spiritualistic, which was steeped in a philosophy that is still very much persistent today. And I'm going to tie that in today. I believe that the... That the uh, religion of the serpent that we find in Genesis chapter 3 when he appears to Eve at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that that persists even today. And the roots of many of the philosophical ideas in the world religions that we have today and in the popular culture can be traced all the way back to ancient Egypt. There is nothing new under the sun. And we're going to look at that in connection. So that's the next presentation that we will have. You will be fascinated. Look at these serpents here. That's from a lintel stone at the most ancient pyramid at Saqqara, the first pyramid ever built in Egypt in the first part of Egypt's history. So the choice for Moses, would he be an Egyptian god or God's servant? The third presentation this afternoon will be on the wilderness and the burning bush, how Moses had to retrain himself in the great scope of things, 
and uh, God actually had to retrain him during that wilderness experience of 40 years, and we're going to gain some important lessons. We're going to go into the book of Genesis and look at how Moses combated the, the concept of creation or the concept of the uh, cosmology idea of the ancient Egyptians when he wrote under inspiration the book of Genesis during that period in the wilderness, as Ellen White tells us, and how Moses in exile was retrained and equipped for the greatest task that he would ever encounter in his life, not to be Pharaoh of Egypt, but to be a leader of God's people. And there's going to be important lessons for us there as well. The fourth presentation this afternoon is the making of an empire, because you see, when we make decisions for God, Satan doesn't give up in pursuing us. In fact, many times he persists even more deeply in his pursuit of us. And we're going to talk about how the Pharaoh of Egypt, I believe, uh, went after Moses in a major way, even during that wilderness experience that God had for him, and how he built up an empire. And I just am in the process of writing a book about that military expansion and uh, we'll share some, some insights into uh, that experience. Finally, uh, the deliverance and the exodus. Of course, that's where it's all leading towards. We're going to look at the plagues, which was a decreation of, of ancient Egypt. Um, these were literal plagues that God placed there and what the meanings of those plagues were, how they were directed against the gods of ancient Egypt, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, uh, the retraining of Israel and their dependence on the God of heaven because I believe that these are lessons that we can gain for our journey to the promised land. Aren't we all heading there? We're all heading there and the book of Exodus through the book of Deuteronomy shares with us important insights in how God wants to train this generation to meet Jesus when he comes in the clouds of heaven. Finally, we're going to focus in our last presentation on Sabbath afternoon on the sanctuary and worship. God with us, this is the crucial element that we are as a, as a church are to focus on and to proclaim to the world what does it mean to have Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary today pleading in our behalf, how is that rooted in the sanctuary, the wilderness sanctuary in Exodus and God's plan for our future. So we're going to look to, during this six-part series on astonishing discoveries and that unlock mysteries centuries old in Egypt, and hopefully we will gain some important insights for our lives as we go into that. I'm going to try this again and see if it works. It doesn't work. So I'm going to... The land of the Nile. When we think about the land of the Nile, we have to think about Egypt because it was called by Herodotus, the great Greek historian who lived during the time of Esther. It was, he called Egypt the gift of the Nile. If you don't have the Nile, you don't have Egypt. The Nile is the longest river in the world. It begins in the heart of Africa. I was there just a year and a half ago in uh, Tanzania, in Rwanda, in Burundi. In, you know, these countries argue actually where the Nile starts because the tributaries coming down from the mountains all go and flow into uh, the, uh, the great uh, 
lake there, Lake Victoria, and then they begin their journey uh, north, which is kind of strange for us, but downhill north into the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, this is the Nile River, the great gift of ancient Egypt. If you look at the topography of Egypt today, and you look at uh, the desert that surrounds Egypt, look at that green strip that ends up in the Nile Delta. This is where the majority of Egyptians live today. And of course, Cairo is right in the middle of that delta, one of the largest cities in the world. Nobody knows exactly its population because uh, you know people are living on the streets there. People are living in poverty. Um, estimates uh, range anywhere from 10 to 15 million sometimes even higher than that. It's one of the world's largest cities and metropolises. And uh, at 80 to 90% of the people of Egypt live along that strip of the Nile where they can cultivate and where they can make a living. Of course, this is one of the ancient civilizations of the world. And if you look at history, it is probably one of the longest lasting civilizations of the world. We're talking about thousands of years of history for this particular civilization of Egypt. And it becomes the foundation for the thinking processes and the religion and the uh, practices of generations following Egypt. We often trace back ideas to ancient Greece or we trace back ideas to ancient Rome, but they got their ideas from Egypt and it passed along through these major empires all the way through history, and we're going to see that. The ancient pyramids, fantastic treasures uh, that we find still and we'll talk about in great detail during the seminar. Incredible, awesome monuments. I mean, if you're standing here at Abu Simbel, the temple down at Aswan, let me just tell you, you're about this big in comparison to these huge colossal statues of the seated king, and they're all, by the way, the same person. You think he had an idea about his own power and majesty? This is Ramses II, one of the, the, the longest reigning pharaoh in Egyptian history, 67 years. And he had over 100 children, but we'll get to him at a later point in time. Amazing architecture, incredible architecture that influences the architecture of subsequent uh, civilizations and, in fact, can still be seen today. How many of you have been to Washington, D.C.? The Washington Monument. Anybody been to the top of the Washington Monument? That is an Egyptian obelisk. And that is a monument that has its roots in ancient Egypt. And we can go back to other buildings as well and look at that. Now, the pyramids, there are 138 of them in Egypt. We often think of these three pyramids at Giza, but you can see there are smaller pyramids next to the pyramids at Giza as well. These were for the queens, uh, by the way. The kings were buried in the major pyramids and the queens in smaller pyramids. I'm sorry, ladies, that's, that's just the way it was in ancient Egypt. And uh, if you looked at the previous image of, of Ramses in Abu Simbel, you would see the ladies are about this big in comparison to the colossal image of Ramses. He has actually his wives between his legs down below. That's just the way they were thinking back then. Why? Because the Egyptian king was not only king of the greatest empire that existed in that point in history, he was also worshipped as a god, as we will see. And this was extremely important. The Giza pyramids are, of course, the only seven wonder of the ancient world that still exists today. All the other, thank you so much, all of the other uh, wonders of the ancient world are gone. 
They've disappeared. We know them because they're listed in the histories, but the Giza pyramids are the only ones that are there. There are three of them. Uh, Khufu, Khafra, and Mankwara. These are the uh, individuals that were buried in those pyramids. And uh, I have been in two of them, the Great Pyramid of Khufu and the smaller pyramid. The, the middle pyramid is not generally open to the public. I have climbed the smallest pyramid. You're not allowed to climb any of the pyramids today, and there are guards all around there. And if you climb to the top, they don't like it. They will arrest you, and they will send you to prison. But many years ago, I was able to sneak, and I was able to climb the smallest pyramid. Okay, uh, don't tell anybody, please. Oh, this is being recorded, isn't it? All right, well, anyway, I won't be arrested today for that, I don't think. Um, we have to understand that these pyramids were built with two to three million blocks of stone. When you see them from far away like this, you don't understand the magnitude and the size of these buildings. Uh, they were incredibly in, in, uh, huge in size. Each stone weighed between two and three tons. We're talking about the outer stones to build the pyramid. They're made of local stone that were quarried about 20 miles away. On the other side of Cairo, they were brought on barges when the Nile uh, flooded. When there was an inundation of the Nile, they were brought there and, and were built. Uh, Cheops, or the Khufu Pyramid, the Great Pyramid, is 481 feet tall. It is on a footprint of 13 acres. If we compare it with uh, some of the buildings that we know uh, from recent history, uh, this is the, uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, Big Ben in London. We know the Statue of Liberty. The pyramid, the Great Pyramid of Egypt, is taller than any of them. In fact, the Great Pyramid of Egypt was the tallest building in the world until the Eiffel Tower was built in the late 1800s. I want you to think about that for a moment. For 4,000 years, this building dominated as the tallest building in the world. Now, I grew up in Berrien Springs, Michigan, right across the lake from Chicago. And when I was growing up, the tallest building in the world was the Sears Tower in Chicago. Today, that's no longer the case. Today, the tallest building is in Dubai and uh, the Borg, and it's a huge building. But I would challenge any architect today, and I have a cousin who's an architect and a brother-in-law who's one as well. I would challenge any architect. I don't believe any of our modern buildings would last 4,000 years. These buildings lasted for centuries, and they were meant to last for centuries because behind them is an ideology that not only believes in the God of Egypt, that is the Pharaoh of Egypt, but in his eternal destiny, which these pyramids, and we're going to talk about that further as we go along, were meant to be. So here we have uh, the, the second largest pyramid. This is Hephron. And notice that these were beautifully encased on the outside with limestone. We're going to move ahead quickly here. Um, here's a close-up. Here's uh, just an idea of how big these blocks of stone are. There's a man standing in the corner. Just look, you cannot step up the pyramid. You have to pull yourself up the pyramid. That's why nobody really should climb this, because if you lose your balance and you tumble down, um, it's a, a ways down, okay? And you're not likely to survive. 
I actually uh, was told by another professor friend of mine that he had a student once that climbed the smallest pyramid, and he, he basically, he was a gymnast, and he, he did a handstand on the top of the pyramid. Now, you have to understand that the pyramid has a very flat top, and it, it's not likely that he was going to fall, but, oh, man, I, I've never gotten used to heights, and I don't think I will ever. How were they built? Well, it's still a mystery, and I'm not going to go into details here. It's still a mystery. We really don't know. There's all kinds of theories. You can watch documentaries on the History Channel, on the Discovery Channel. The fact of the matter is that they had technology back then. They had an intellectual thinking back then that surpassed even the Greek thinking. Before Pythagoras ever came around, there was the Pythagorean theorem that helped these pyramids being built just perfectly, perfectly symmetrical, in line with Orion, in line with celestial ideas, these Egyptians knew, had a knowledge and knew what they were doing. I believe it was a supernatural knowledge. And I don't think it was coincidence on how they were uh, inspired to do these things. Now, most Egyptologists won't go that far, but I will go that far. What is another thing is very interesting. These pyramids were not built at the end of Egyptian history. They were built at the beginning of Egyptian history. We're talking Dynasty Three and Dynasty Four. Egypt had over 20 dynasties. So that tells you something about evolution and the whole concept of progress in civilization. If you visit Egypt today, it is not the grandeur of what happened in the Old Kingdom of Egypt when the pyramids were built. Okay? These people, right shortly after the worldwide flood, had amazing technologies that allowed these buildings to be built and to withstand that many years of history. I would challenge anyone today to, to, uh, to, do, to uh, uh, accomplish those kinds of things. How were they built? Well, there's estimates. 20,000 workers for 20 years worked on one of these pyramids. The Egyptian king, when he became king, planned these pyramids, these funeral monuments, these tombs for himself for his whole life. A few years ago, I was invited by National Geographic to do a to interview for a special on the pyramids and also on, um, on uh, Egyptian warfare, which we will talk about in one of our seminars coming up. And, and it was fascinating to, to be there with other Egyptologists whose expertise is more in this area, mine is more in military activity, and to uh, look at what they were saying about these pyramids. And again, uh, that's a whole other lecture. We want to focus on the Exodus. Why did they do it? The Egyptians were fascinated with life after death. The Egyptians, we could even say, were obsessed with death and the afterlife. I mean, why else would you expend the kind of financial and... and and workmen uh, industry to do this for that many years. And by the way, this was not sustained in subsequent dynasties. This was only a short period of time in dynasty three and four when these pyramids were built. This did not sustain itself throughout Egyptian history. They finally figured out, hey, this is not going to happen for every pharaoh that ever reigns in Egypt. This is just not going to be the case. So. It's an incredible thing. They were fascinated with life after death, and we're going to deal with this in more detail in our next presentation. 
Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 says something very interesting for us in relationship to the Israelites and their time in Egypt. There's a prediction, a prophecy that is made, and we read it in Genesis 15, verse 13. Then he said to Abram, this is God, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Ellen White, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter uh, 5, we read this. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and all their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. In Exodus chapter 5, it says, later in history, so the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick. Now, I want to say something very clearly here. The Israelite slaves did not build the pyramids. The pyramids were around hundreds of years before the Israelites were in Egypt. Abraham, when he came with Sarah, and you remember tried to uh, play a little fast one with Pharaoh, he would have seen the pyramids already. Okay, Joseph would have seen the pyramids when he came into Egypt long before his brothers came there. Jesus would have seen the pyramids when he went to Egypt as a young boy, fleeing uh, Herod's uh, soldiers. So the pyramids were in existence for a long period of time. The, there's a conception out there by some that the Israelites built them. No, the Bible's very clear. They made things with straw and brick. These were not made with straw and brick. These were made with two to three ton stones. Okay? And the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 111 very specifically that the Israelites were tasked to build the store cities of Pithom and Ramesses. These are store cities, not pyramids. Now I want to look at some highlights here. I want to show you how the Bible emphasizes the labor and the intensity of what the Israelites were doing in Exodus chapter 1. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor. Notice the highlights. All kinds of labor, labors rigorously imposed upon them. You kind of, if I were to put this out in kind of a poetic form, in a kind of chiastic structure, you would have a very nice chiastic structure there, where you have all of these emphases uh, really made uh, very powerful here. By the way, what was the reason for this? You remember that Pharaoh had tried, first of all, to, get, to limit the population of Israel by imposing labor on them. Then he tried uh, all kinds of other things. And finally, he tried through the midwives to have their population decrease. They would not do that and honored only God. And God blessed the midwives. And then what happened? Then he resorted to a death decree, and he says, I will cast every boy under the age, certain age into the Nile River. So this is how we see totalitarian regimes still operate today. And we can see that repeated in history many times. So in Exodus, we read of bricks being made with straw. Um, and it's interesting because scholars doubted this idea for many years. Because you see, in Europe, you don't make bricks with straw. Um, in, in other parts of the world, you don't build buildings this way. And before exploration started in ancient Egypt, uh, scholars, biblical scholars, said, what is this bricks with straw? 
this makes absolutely no sense. This is an anachronism, a mistake in the Bible. There's a problem with this. Well, that was before we began to travel to Egypt during the Renaissance period and, and later on when people began to travel to this part of the world out of their interest in the Bible. They began to see things differently and they began to discover archaeologically texts and tomb paintings that actually depict the very thing that the Bible describes. Papyrus Anastasi 1 says, I'm without equipment. There are no people to make bricks and there's no straw in the district. Yes, the Egyptians made things with straw. And if you want to see a nice color version of this uh, image down here, these are Asiatic, you can call them slaves, you can call them servants, they were often paid, but they are in the process of making bricks. And they have, in this section you can't see, they have Egyptian taskmasters standing over them, but here they are in the process of making bricks. And there are piles of straw that they are also uh, gathering. So we can see this very clearly. So the Egyptians were not making, I'm sorry, the Israelites were not making the pyramids. They made the storehouses of Pithom and Ramses. And recently there's been, again, an idea that has been put out there that these were storehouses for grain that Joseph built or used. This cannot be the case based on what we know of the architecture of these pyramids. These pyramids were there long before the time of Joseph, as I said earlier. And look at the interior of the pyramid the bulk of the pyramid is solid stone. You have a small little burial chamber here that is tiny. I've been inside it. It's smaller than this room. Okay? And then you have a fake burial chamber below it to, to, to thwart robbers. And then you have another. You have all these. This is what we believe anyway. We have these different shafts. But we don't have space to store grain. Okay? This would have been a very... I mean, if you think, building these things for 20 years, and then, besides, they don't fit the time period. Joseph came in Dynasty 12 years later. These were not built for Joseph to store grain. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that Joseph went around Egypt, and he built storehouses for the grain, had those built. So we need to be careful with that. Here, is a storehouse, here are storehouses that are outside the Ramesseum, which was Ramses II's mortuary temple in Egypt. This is just an example. This dates to about 200 years after the time of the Exodus. Here's a close-up of these. They still stand today after 3,200 years. And I, I've walked through them. In fact, I'm going to show you a picture in a moment where I'm pointing. These are made out of bricks, mud bricks. And here is my hand. And if you don't think it's my hand, I'm going to put my hand right here. You see I'm wearing the same watch? The same watch that's there. By the way, I've had this watch. I went recently to Kay's Jewelers. I don't buy jewelry, by the way. Um, but I bought my watch there. And they have a deal where you get a free battery. Every, I, that's why I bought my watch there. They said, for life, for the life of the, of the watch, I will, we will give you free batteries. So I go to Kay Jewelers at our local mall. And I go there. And the other day I went there and and, and they said, well, do you have the receipt for the watch? I said, no, I bought it years ago. How many years ago? I don't remember. But I remember that this trip was in 2009. So I said, I think it was, this was just a, a few months ago. I said, I think it was before 2009. She looked it up. She says, actually, it was 2002. That's a pretty good longevity for a watch, I think, don't you think? So anyway, uh, and I haven't had to pay for a battery since. But the point is not the watch. The point is that I'm pointing here at... At, at straw that you can still see in Egyptian bricks that were built 
in the same New Kingdom period that Moses lived in, a hundred years, two hundred years later, but you can still see them in the brick today after 3,300 years. You know why that's possible? Because Egypt is a very dry climate. And organic material does not decompose and, and deteriorate like it would in other areas. And it is still there in the bricks. In fact, when you go up and down the Nile River, and as I've done many times, you can still see people in modern days making bricks and building their houses the way the Egyptians have built them for thousands of years. In Cairo today, they're still building out of mud brick. They've got scaffolding up and they're building as they did thousands of years ago. Yes, they have other buildings that are not made with mud brick as well, but they're still doing that. So this is fascinating. I believe that as we study this ancient world, the Bible comes to life and we can see the real context and the real elements that the Israelites were engaged with. And by the way, it is hard work. We had to do some work with mud and straw to do some reconstruction work on an excavation I worked with a few years ago uh, at Kirbet Kayafa in Israel. And one of our vice presidents from Southern Adventist University came to join us and he wanted to get the whole experience and work in different jobs during the time that he was there. So I put him in a number of different jobs and finally uh, I put him on the, on the conservation job and he spent a day making mud with straw. And he said uh, afterwards, says, Dr. Hazel, I appreciate that experience, he says, but that was the hardest day of labor I've ever had in my life. And I said, he says, I understand a little bit more about maybe what the children of Israel went through. For years. For years. So what do the ancients tell us about the Exodus? What records do we have outside of the Bible about the Exodus? This event that shapes so much of the Old Testament, if you think about it, the first five books of the Bible, which are the foundation of Scripture, were written during this period. The Bible was, begun to, was, was started and was the first written pages of the Bible were written by who? By Moses during this period. So if we look back at history, what can we find? And the answer, I have to tell you, is a little disappointing for historians and for archaeologists because the ancient Egyptians do not have any records of the Exodus directly. So what do we do with that? You're right, like saying right now, I can see there's going to be a mass Exodus from this room. <laughs> what are you going to talk about for the next five seminars? Well, we're going to look at ancient history in Egypt and we're going to try to piece together the circumstantial evidence that lines up with biblical history and look at what we can find. And let me tell you this as a historian, as an, as an archaeologist. I have poured through documents of the ancient Egyptians. In the original language, I read Egyptian hieroglyphics. I had to do this for my dissertation. And I will tell you something. The Egyptians never, ever, ever, in any of their annals, in any of their historical documents, ever admit that they have been defeated by a foreign army. The Assyrians never admit defeat. The Babylonians never admit defeat. The Hittites never admit defeat. If you want to come and hear more information about this, I'm going to be presenting that uh, this afternoon as we deal with the expansion of the empire and the military strategy of the ancient Egyptians. But I want to tell you this. I am not surprised that we don't find evidence of the Exodus because this was the most devastating experience that Egypt 
ever encountered in its history if the Bible is to be taken at face value. And I believe the Bible needs to be taken at its face value. Okay? So why would the Egyptians record something when they don't record any other defeat? Because they were not only defeated, they were decimated, their crops, everything. Their religion was put to the test and it failed not 10 times. Yes, I know what you're thinking. There's 10 plagues. It failed 12 times. And you'll have to see that as we get into the seminars later on. It failed 12 times. Colin Brown writes, If an event such as the Exodus is seen as a paradigm of God's care for his people, the comfort and hope that the believer is exhorted to draw from it are surely ill-founded if there is no corresponding historical base. Let me tell you something. If we give up on the historicity of the Bible, we give up everything. You know, it's not, it's not something that you can do very easily because, you know, where do you stop? If I choose not to believe this detail of Scripture, where do you stop in that process of thinking? We'll discover in our next presentation, and we're rushing to that very soon. When do, does this one end, by the way? Somebody tell me. 45, good, I've got some time. We'll find out in our next presentation what happens when doubt is placed uh, in the minds of individuals. So Colin Brown says this in his book, History and Faith. You see, history and faith are inextricably linked. God is a God who works in history. And the Bible is his account through inspiration, through hundreds of years, and through the testimony of writer and prophet after prophet of God's acts in history. And if you want to expand on that a little bit more, Listen to my seminars from last year. I talk about that in great detail. James K. Hoffmeyer, a very well-known Christian Egyptologist who teaches in Chicago at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, writes this in a recent book entitled, Do Historical Matters Matter to Faith? Do they? Absolutely they do. This is what he says. The Old Testament scriptures do not treat the sojourn Exodus wilderness events as trivial matters, Rather, these events stand at the heart of Israel's religious life as evidenced by the fact that these names are ubiquitous. That means that they are everywhere throughout the Old Testament itself. And I love this quote from Walter Kaiser, a friend of mine who's also a Bible-believing evangelical scholar writing. He's written over 30 books. His book, Toward Rediscovering the Old Testament, he writes... Without the Exodus, there is nothing to the claim repeated 125 times in the Old Testament. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I want you to think about this. The Exodus is referred to from its beginnings all the way through to the book of Revelation. The concept of moving from slavery to the promised land is a theme that is used to talk about well, the life that we're in today as we're moving to the promised land. Isn't that right? It continues to be that theme. In fact, Otto Piper, a well-known theologian who taught for many years at Princeton University, writes this in an article back in 1957. Of the 2,688 references of the Old Testament in the New Testament, Exodus occupies the third place with 220 quotations. 
Now, this is just quotations. This is not allusions because the Bible is filled in the New Testament with allusions to events in the Old Testament. These are direct quotations that he's talking about. Okay? So we have to understand that if the Exodus didn't happen in history, then the New Testament writers, including Jesus, who took Moses for granted as a historical person, was wrong. And that collapses everything in my mind. Paul writes this. He says in relationship to, uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, in relationship to uh, the events of history. Some of you, I'm paraphrasing here, some of you do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. But if Christ did not raise from the dead, what? Then your faith is vain and your preaching also. You see, what we believe as Christians has to be rooted in history. If Jesus didn't physically resurrect from the dead, and that's something that we cannot prove or substantiate through archaeology, okay? That's something we accept by faith. And it's based on the evidences of the eyewitnesses of the New Testament that were there, that have given us many different accounts. They're called the Gospels. How many of them are there? Four, okay. Many different accounts of that, and of course have testified through that through the Old Testament, uh, for, through the New Testament. But if that event didn't take place, then where, where are we? The Exodus event foreshadows, the sanctuary foreshadows, the temple foreshadows Christ. And it is Christ who confirmed these events in history. So what do we have in Egypt? Well, we have one reference, maybe two, to ancient Israel. One is found on this monument. It's actually collapsed here a little bit. It kind of was stretched out. It's, it's taller than I am. It's a stela in Egypt at the Cairo Museum. It was found in 1896 by Sir Flinders Petrie when he was excavating in uh, Luxor and Thebes. And it mentions a campaign by the son of Ramses II against Canaan. And in this campaign, he describes that uh, he has defeated the Tehenu. Those are the Hittites. Those are, I'm sorry, those are the Libyans. He has defeated Hatti. That's the Hittites. The Hittites actually has not defeated. They are at peace. They are, are still under the treaty that his father Ramses II made with them earlier. And then that he has defeated Canaan and the entities that are within Canaan, the city of Gezer, which I excavated in the 1990s, Yanoam, Ashkelon is mentioned here as well. I don't know why that's missing. That's another city that I excavated with Harvard University in the 1990s. Huru, which is a synonym for Canaan, so these are the entities within Canaan. Israel is mentioned right in here. This is out of order. So, Tehenu, Hati, Canaan, then Gezer, Yanoam, Ashkelon, and Israel within the territory of Canaan. So by the time of Merneptah in 1209 BC, where is Israel located? No longer in Egypt. It is identified by an Egyptian pharaoh as being defeated in Canaan. Now we don't have a reference to Merneptah, this king, uh, in the Bible, but, uh, or this campaign. We have another evidence from the reliefs at Karnak. This is the most magnificent temple that you visit in Egypt. The Karnak reliefs show the campaign of Merneptah on that wall there. And on that wall there, we see among the depictions a group of people without an inscription. We find Ashkelon that is mentioned by name and a number of other cities that are perhaps corresponding to the cities we just mentioned, Gezer, Yanoam. And then we find a people without a city that are being defeated by uh, Pharaoh's chariot here and they're laying down here 
and many scholars believe that these are the first depiction that we have actually of the Israelites. Now, this is circumstantial evidence, but it's real evidence. Israel is mentioned in an Egyptian text dating back to 1209 BC. What does that imply for the Exodus? If they're already in, in Canaan at 1209 BC, when did the Exodus happen? Before that time, right? Does that make sense? It happened before that time. So we need to look for an Exodus date before that time. And not only that, we need to take into account all the details of the Exodus. We need to take into account what? The fact that Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years. That he then went back to Egypt and after a series of plagues led the people out of Egypt, right? That they spent another 40 years wandering in the wilderness due to the unbelief of 10 spies that came back that didn't, uh, didn't, didn't follow uh, God's plan. And that that generation, after it died away, that eventually they entered the land. There's a lot of chronological details that you have to keep in mind here. You have to also keep in mind that a pharaoh died while there was an exodus. And all of these things, all of these things leads me as a historian not to accept the commonly accepted date for the exodus that you see in all the movies. How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments? Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. Uh, how many of you have seen The Prince of Egypt, the cartoon? Okay. Um, all right. Who do they say the Pharaoh is? Ramses II. But Ramses II lived, his son, Merneptah, this is from his son, Merneptah, only reigned for 10 years. Ramses II reigned before him for 67 years. Who was the Pharaoh that died, in the ex died while Moses was in exile with that long of a reign? It doesn't work in history. You have to give up some of the historical details of the Bible to accept uh, Ramses II as the king of the Exodus. There's another issue here as well, and that is a very important text from the Bible. But before I say this, there's been a very recent discovery that has been made. It's actually been in a museum for many years in Berlin. The Berlin Pedestal. It's a little block of stone that has a few place names in these rings. These are rings with place names. And guess what? Canaan is mentioned. The same entities that are in the Merneptah are mentioned here, two of them anyway. And then this one is broken, but it's been partially reconstructed. There's been several scientific articles written just in the last few years by, by, by very uh, influential and very prestigious scholars who claim that this is also a reference, it's spelled a little bit differently, but a reference to Israel. And those scholars date this even further back than the Merneptah Stila. They date it, some of them, to the reign of Amenhotep III or even Amenhotep II, which would mean that we have a reference to Israel even before 1209 BC, which supports the biblical chronology and date for the Exodus, which is earlier. Let's look at that. Let's compare Egyptian history with biblical history in the life of Moses. That's what we're going to be doing here for the next five seminars after this one, okay? We're going to look at Egypt. We're going to look at what happened in the Exodus. We're going to look at the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. By the way, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, okay? Folks, the spirit of prophecy has been given us for this time. It is what is going to keep us focused and keep us from getting into all kinds of peripheral things that really don't matter in life. The evangelical community today is in disarray. And we, as a movement, have been given 
a very clear guide in the scriptures and in the spirit of prophecy. And it is a blessing, a blessing. It's a blessing personally to our spiritual lives. It's a blessing to me as a historian. Because when I read her, I've been to these places. I live in these places. 30 years, I'm, I, I, if I add, a, I, I spend two to three months a year in the Middle East. Ellen White never visited the Middle East. But when you read Desire of Ages, when you read Prophets and Kings, Patriarchs and Prophets, that's the book, by the way, for GYC this year. If you read Patriarchs and Prophets, if you read her descriptions, it's as if she was there. It's as if she stood there. The way she describes the scenes, it's like, Wow. She was there. The Lord provided her with divine wisdom and visions to allow her to see things. And we need to rely on those today. This is not the time to cast doubt. It's the time to move forward in faith, just as Moses and the children of Israel did. So let's look at, let's look at this. 1 Kings 6.1 is a very important verse for us to pinpoint the date of the Exodus. It, it is not from a time period of the Exodus. It actually refers to the building of Solomon's temple, but this is what it says. It says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. So this is a, a historical documentation of the date when Solomon began to build the temple. And the writer of 1 Kings is giving a specific date. And he's doing that and he's nailing it down in several ways. Not just one way. By the way, you know, when we date things and we write a letter or we sign a contract, we put one date, right? And, and, and they, people take our word for it that we signed it on that day. The writer here of this historical document is not only giving us one datum point. He's giving us several. What does he do? Let's go back and let's read it again. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel did what? Came out of the land of Egypt. So 480 years after the what? The exodus in what? In the fourth year of Solomon's reign. And we know when that happened because, oh, I wish I had another, time to, another hour to lecture on you, for you. But we know when that happened because of a uh, Pharaoh that campaigned in his son Rehoboam's reign by the name of Shishak or Shoshank I. Um, we know that that happened around uh, 970. Some date it to 966 B.C. Notice it says, in the month of Ziv, which is in the second month. Do you think there's some specificity there? Now, some scholars have said, we can't take this text seriously because it just says 480 years. And that's a round number. I mean, if it had said 481 years, we could accept it as a historical date. But because it's 480 years and they get into all kinds of, of mathematical gymnastics and they say, well, you know, 40, 40 years is a generation, so this represents 12 generations after the children of Israel, and 12 goes along with the 12 tribes, and they come up with this elaborate thing. By the way, we need to be careful. There are people that are coming up with all kinds of elaborate things out there. Let's stick with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and not get into all of these weird kind of 
of, of ideas out there. There's enough that we have. You know, sometimes I think that we are tired with the message that God has given us for this generation. And we're trying to find something new and exciting. Let me tell you, there are millions and billions of people out there that haven't heard the new and exciting of Jesus Christ and what he is planning to do in their lives and in ours. And the sanctuary doctrine and all the things that we are taking for granted today, let's not get caught up in all kinds of new things. Let's stick with what we have. So here we have something interesting. I argue with these people, look, it may be 480 years, so what? If I'm 50 years old, and I'm not yet, but if I'm 50 years old, are you going to say, I'm not being very honest because it's a round number? Well, I can show you my birth certificate. I can show you my passport. Okay, whatever. But come on. There's a, a, a specific month that's given here. It's the month of Ziv, which is the second month. That's pretty specific. Okay? So anyway, we have to take this into account. Now, there are other, by the way, there are other corroborating texts uh, Judges 11.26, if you want to look that up sometime. We're not going to go into that today. Judges 11.26, which says that the children of Israel were already in the land of, of, uh, of occupation for 300 years and still had not taken it over. This is during the, the judge, th judgeship of Jephthah, who, who, uh, and this is in relationship to his reign, and we know that that took place around 1100, so that would date the Israelites around 1400. So we have a chronological uh, some backup from other texts of the Bible as well. So if Solomon's temple was built around 970, some would say 966, um, the text places the Exodus 480 years before the temple is built. So let's do a little bit of calculation here. 970, 480 years back would be that the Exodus took place around 1450. Some people would narrow that down to 1446 or 47 if we're very specific with, with um, Solomon's reign. Um, it would mean, by the way, Moses, according to the New Testament, was 40 years old when he left Egypt. We'll talk about that in the next presentation. And he was 80 years old when he went back to Egypt to ask for the freedom of the Israelites from Pharaoh. So Moses was 80. And after the 40 years in the wilderness, how many years old was he after that, that period of, of wandering? He would have been 120 when he died. Okay, so that gives us a kind of chronological. Now, I, that's what scholars then say again. Oh, but these are 40 years. These are round numbers. 40, 40, 40. It couldn't, it's too perfect. It couldn't have happened that way. Well, maybe there's a perfect timing in God's time that things happen a certain way. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, the Bible says it. That's good enough for me. All right, so let's move on. So we have here 40, 40. Yes, so that would put the birth of Moses around 1530. Let's look at what's happening in Egypt around 1530. That puts us back in the 18th dynasty, the beginning of the new kingdom in Egypt, the most, uh, how shall we say, the most famous probably. I was gonna, it, it wasn't the, the most glorious, but in some ways it was the golden age of ancient Egypt. It was where, this is where King Tut lived, during the time where King Tut, King Tutankhamun lived. This is the period of Ramses II, that great pharaoh that I mentioned. There are several dynasties uh, that, that are in this 18th, 19th, 20th dynasty. This is the period of Egyptian expansion and empire that we'll talk about later on. And it would place his birth in the reign of the I. the I, who was the grandson of Ahmose, who, who uh, expelled the Hyksos from Egypt and who reestablished Egypt as as not being controlled by Asiatics, but being controlled by local Egyptians. This was a very important point in history. 
And this was a period of great literature, great building, uh, temples, monuments, an amazing period of history as we will see. But it was also a period of crisis in that dynasty, a crisis of dynastic succession. What's dynastic succession? Well, we're in a period of dynastic succession right now. We are in a period in the United States where we are uh, hearing a lot of uh, uh, debates and, and polls, and we are very interested in who the new president is going to be next year. Isn't that right? We could refer to that almost as a dynastic succession. Only in ancient Egypt, it wasn't something that was voted by the populace. In ancient Egypt, it was by what? By birth, the firstborn or the one that was next in line to be king was going to be the Egyptian pharaoh. But there was a dynastic crisis. William Murnane, a very well-known Egyptologist from the University of Memphis, writes this. He says, the first major crisis in the new kingdom was dynastic involving tensions within the royal family which festered over the next three generations. Women continued to hold the position of chief queen at the expense of non-royal women who bore the king's sons. What does this mean? It means that the chief queens of Egypt for three generations were not bearing male heirs to the throne. It's a problem. Now, we know biologically today this was not the woman's problem. This was the man's problem. But they may not have known that back then. And so what happened was the Egyptian pharaoh had a harem of wives and concubines and the other secondary wives and concubines. Isn't that terrible to hear that? Especially after our wonderful presentation by Natasha last night about the beauty of marriage and, and vows and all of that. Well, that was not the case for ancient Egypt, okay? They had many wives. And the succession happened through the chief queen, but the chief queen wasn't bearing sons, so the secondary wives had to bear the dynastic heir to the throne. Okay, does that, does that make sense? Let's look at it more closely. The chief queen of the I, her name was Ahmes. And we know that she, had, she bore children. In fact, uh, her most famous child was a young girl by the name of Hatshepsut. I know that's a mouthful, but that's her name. We're going to talk about her a lot. Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut was a, a daughter that she had. She may have had uh, other daughters as well. We're not sure. We have, you know, our records in Egypt are not always complete. Um, and so we don't have complete records of everything. But we know that they didn't have any male offspring. Um, so she had Hatshepsut. And um, it's very interesting that Tutmose I, if we follow the chronology of the Bible, if he was the pharaoh when Moses was born, he would have been the pharaoh that issued the death decree, wouldn't he have been? I find that very interesting. That a death decree to kill all male children, why didn't he say all female children? They bear children, don't they? Weren't the midwives instructed to kill the children uh, from, the, from the wives that, I mean, you know, biology still happens the same today, right? So why not kill the wives? Why the men? Okay, why the, why the male children? At any rate, it's very interesting. What does Pharaoh say? Then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you're to keep alive. Well, he was only having daughters, not sons. <laughs> I don't know. This is complete speculation, but could there have been a little jealousy going on there? I mean, here the Israelites are being blessed and they're, they're expanding and growing and becoming more, who knows what was going on. At any rate, so he marries a secondary wife, or he has many secondary wives, but a secondary wife has a son who becomes, is given the throne name later on of Tutmose II. 
Mutnefret is her name. They have another son. So this would be now the half-brother of Hatshepsut. Are you following me? The half-brother of Hatshepsut. He becomes of age, and his father, the I, dies, and now there is a crisis. Um, who becomes king? Uh, there's no one from the chief queen to become king. And so Hatshepsut, this is kind of strange, I know, Hatshepsut is forced to marry Tutmosa II, her half-brother. And he becomes pharaoh of Egypt through her royal bloodline. He has half the royal bloodline. She has the full royal bloodline. Okay? He becomes king, but he's a very sickly king. And he does not live, we think, maybe two or three years. Some would expand that to 13 years, but most Egyptologists would say two to three years. He only lives two to three years. They don't have any male offspring. That's the second generation. They have no male offspring. Okay. And when he dies, and I'm sorry, that's the only picture I have of him. This is his mummy. That's him. That's actually him. That's Thutmose II. When he dies, okay, who is the successor to the throne going to be? That is the huge question. Because he only lives two or three years, and they don't have any male offspring. And even if they had male offspring, they wouldn't be old enough to be over king. Do any of you have brothers that are two or three years old? Would you want them to be king? Okay. Now, so what, what happened? Well, this was already figured out earlier. Uh, Tutmose II had a secondary wife as well to Hatshepsut. And they bore a son who became Tutmose III. Do you see a pattern, by the way, here? Tutmose I, the second, the third, okay? We have that sometimes in our families too, right? All right, so Tutmose III. Am I out of time? I'm out of time. So I'm going to stop here for the sake of time. I just noticed that. But we're going to continue in our next presentation. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.